Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast for our last episode of the year. But fear not, we're going out with a bang or a roar or whatever the noise is that Formula One cars make because our guest on today's show is none other than Christian Horner, the team principal at Red Bull and one of the sport's most compelling ambassadors. Christian has petrol in his veins. He was a talented driver himself as a young man before he set up his own race team, Arden International, at the age of just 25, and then of course became the sport's youngest ever team principal when he joined Red Bull at 31. We spoke earlier this month at the end of another bumper year for Red Bull and for its talismanic driver, Max Verstappen. And in a reflective conversation, Christian gives us the inside line on that 2021 championship, the fieriest in history, perhaps, the secrets he learned from the sport's biggest characters and why he always uses the exact same portaloo on race day. Enjoy and we'll see you in 2023. But before we begin, I'd love to tell you very briefly about the Gentleman's Journal shop, our new men's style destination full of the independent brands that we love. You can find it at shop.thegentlemansjournal.com. That's shop.thegentlemansjournal.com. Head over there for special unique releases from a fine curation of brands and plenty of picks and pointers from people in the industry who really ought to know. I'm sure you'll find something you love. Christian Horner, thank you so much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. It's great to have you here. Pleasure. Good to be with you. Where are you dialing in from? I am in my office in Milton Keynes, obviously, as we're in the final days of 2022. You grew up not too far from that neck of the woods, is that right? Yeah, I grew up a little bit north of here um, in Leamington Spa around, you know, Warwick. I went to school, so... uh, so Warwickshire, born and bred. So, uh, yeah, not, not a million miles, about an hour from here. Maybe that's a nice place to start then, the kind of the early days of Christian Horner. And I want to ask you, before we get into everything else, kind of when you fell in love with cars and racing, when was your first kind of memory of um, being enamoured by these wild machines, I suppose? Well, I was always a fan of speed and you know, that kind of stuff. So Evil Knievel, when I was growing up, you know, he was a bit of a legend. And then you had TV shows like The Dukes of Hazard and The the Full Guy, where they were driving around in big American cars and trucks and, you know, doing crazy things. And so, um, you know, growing up, sort of following those TV shows, I was just absolutely enthralled by speed. And then built a go-kart to go down the back hill in the village uh, that we lived in uh, made out of some old pram wheels and so on mm. and then really for me it was about wanting to then go racing and uh, it was actually my mum's fault she found for my 12th birthday uh, a battered old go-kart in the back of a local newspaper <laughs> and we um, she knew my father would never agree to it so she bought me this go-kart I pestered her for, for weeks and weeks about it and um, anyway it was too low to drive on the grass or up the drive or anything like that. It was actually an old racing car. Oh, wow. And so we went to, um, my father knew of a, a, an old uh, a track from when he was younger um, near Banbury. And uh, and that's why I suddenly discovered, wow, you could race these things. And the, the thing that we bought was like some relic from the 70s or something. Um, but, uh, you know, suddenly it's like, wow, you know, you know there's this whole racing you know industry and 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 car racing at the time so so uh i started off on that journey and it was uh yeah it was fascinating did school 
kind of suddenly take a back seat, so to speak, once karting came into your life? School definitely took a back seat at that point. I mean, I, I was obsessed with just going racing and so on. And school for me was very much a sort of social affair. Right. Um, so it's finding that balance. I had two other brothers as well. Um, both of them had a go. Didn't really um, get the, have the same level of passion or enjoyment. So, uh, yeah, it was something that I did with my dad. And, um, you know, we go off as a family very often, um, you know, with a picnic and a go-kart in the back of the car and, um, you know, head off to different racetracks around the UK. You mentioned your brothers there. I'm fascinated by people who have brothers because I'm the youngest of five brothers, which probably there's, there's enough oh, to be wow. said about that. But I wonder if, if people who are kind of surrounded by other boys when they're growing up become particularly competitive. Do you think there's something of that in you maybe? I think there was yeah, definitely an element of sibling rivalry when yeah. we were younger. I mean, I'm the middle of three boys. You know, and, and I think when you're the middle one, you're slightly the the odd one out. Um, and uh, both my brothers had their own bedroom. I didn't. And they both had oh. bunk beds. So I just moved between the two, depending on who I was getting on with uh, at the time. So I was kind of homeless between the, uh, between the two of them. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, it was uh, we're quite a sporting family. You know, we played tennis. We got involved in all the sports school sports as well and rugby and football and, yeah. and so on. And my grandfather was a big Coventry City fan um, and a first division referee. Um, so, you know, football was was quite a big thing as well. So, um, but my, uh, the car racing was something that I shared a passion with my, with my dad. Um, mm. You know, he was, uh, uh, you know, had always been a fan of Formula One and racing cars and rally and, and so on. So it was something that suddenly... I got to an age where, you know, I became interesting to him. Right, okay. And when did you, it become clear that maybe this was more than just a hobby? There was actually the chance that you could do something serious with your karting? Well, yeah, as I progressed through the ranks, I started racing, you know, obviously, nationally, then internationally. And, and suddenly there was this world beyond, you know, kart racing and, and you know, to go to kart racing. And I'd seen some of the, the guys, you know, making that step across into car racing. One of those was David Coulthard. And so yeah. it was like, okay, what is the next step? You know, I, I don't want to race a go-kart for the rest of my life. Um, so it, it was then a question of, okay, how do I get into car racing? Am I, am I good enough? And I managed to win a scholarship from Renault in 1991 to make that transition uh, to go from karting into car racing. Did you sense that this was the first step in you going all the way? Was it? Was there a chance in your head then that you were going to be the next, I don't know, who was big then, Nigel Mansell? Was that the kind of aim? Yeah, look, I think at that age, you believe that, you, you know, Formula One is a target and, and that was my goal and aim and you visualise yourself, you know, being in that car or in that surrounding or in that garage. And at that point, I became fairly obsessive about Formula One and, and the drivers of the time and, who was doing what and where and the teams and and so on. I just read as much as I could and, and watch as many races as I could and uh, and obviously be out practicing whenever whenever I could. Is this when you were doing Formula Three Thousand across the kind of nineties? Is that right? No, this was coming through the categories. So I raced. Okay. I started in uh, what was called Formula Renault at the time. Yeah. Then I graduated into Formula Three and then made a step up into Formula Three Thousand, which is the step below Formula One or what would now be called Formula Two. And you, you were just 24 when you set up, in fact, your own racing team, Arden, which, uh, you know, seems like a wildly ambitious thing to do at any age, let alone such a young age like that. What do you remember of that time? And did it seem crazy then? It didn't seem crazy at the time because 
I'd actually had Christian Horner Racing running before that, which was a company that I'd set up to basically run sponsorship through. And I was having right. to go out and find sponsors and uh, you know, be commercial and attract partners and and so on. And and then the, the next step was, okay, I don't have enough money to go to a top team, so why don't we do our own thing? Why don't we buy a car? Um, and uh, yes, so we set up the company at the end of 96 for the 97 season. And yeah, I'd be doing the tax returns, the VAT returns, booking hotels, paying the salaries weekly at that point. Um, and it was a fantastic education for me to have to be dealing and running a small business and the challenges of that and trying to make ends meet and banks and overdrafts and loans yeah. and finance. And, um, and and then, you know, by the way, you've got to drive the car as well. Um, so... I, I did that to set the team up and I drove the team for two years um, to, to set it up. But, uh, you know, I've quickly realized that you couldn't do both. You couldn't do both effectively or efficiently. I needed to make a choice. And for me, it was obvious that my talent was, should we say, limited behind the steering wheel. But I just loved the industry. I loved working in a team and didn't want to go back to university. Was there a moment when you realized that maybe you didn't have quite what it took to kind of compete at that highest level yeah you, you know the higher you go the more competitive it got i remember the beginning of the 1998 season there was a pre-season test in estoril and you know when pablo montoya came past me as i was exiting the pits and i remember him heading into the first turn in estoril which was a high speed flat out right hander and the the wheel was trying to decouple itself from the tire and you know he was just absolutely planted uh, in a four-wheel slide with a barrier just feet from the edge of the track. And I thought, sure, I, I can't do that. My my level of ability just will not allow it. And my head, my heart might want to do it, but my head is definitely saying, change down a gear and break. <laughs> do you think that the experience of, of being a racing driver, even just in something like that, do you think it's given you a kind of higher risk tolerance and everything else in your life? You may not have the risk tolerance of JPM, but more than the average citizen, certainly. No, absolutely. It gave me a wonderful insight. And, you know, I raced from the age of 12 to the age of 24. So, um, you know, 12 years of my life was in, in competition. And that helped, you know, your formative years. And uh, just being around good teams and not so good teams, you could see it was, the difference was the people and the attitude of the people and the attention to detail. So it was a tremendous education for me. And, uh, you know, I've applied a lot of those lessons today that I learned in those, those early years. Was it difficult to, to tear yourself out of the driving seat? Was it painful that first season after you weren't kind of behind the wheel? Not really, because I just threw myself into the role of building the team up and trying to yeah. build the team into a competitive team. And I always had the intention of driving perhaps at Le Mans or a sports car, but it never happened. It never, uh, you know, I was so involved in, in what I was doing that uh, very quickly months became years and it was a distant memory. But it was a great experience. I'm grateful that I got the opportunity to do that. Yeah. Um, because I think, you know, being a driver can be a very lonely experience. And even though I'm not at the level of Formula One, um, you know, all those emotions you can relate to. And, and so for me, it was a great insight into some of the difficulties that drivers um, yeah. face. What is that loneliness? What, what's it like? Because we know that Formula One is in many ways a team sport. But as you say, it does often come down to that individual. In what sense is it a lonely thing to do? Well, it is a team sport, but drivers effectively are contractors. And um you know, they have to step in and they have to deliver. And, um, you know, there's a huge amount of expectation and there's, 
not really any coaches in, in, in motorsport or very few or certainly wasn't in, you know, in my time. And, um, uh, you know, you've only got yourself to, to draw upon. Uh, yeah. with your data engineer or your mechanics. And I think that, uh, you know, you only have yourself to worry about as well um, as a driver. It's about your performance, about you delivering. It's not, you don't have to worry and think about all other aspects of the team, which, of course, as soon as you step into management, suddenly you're responsible for everything. Um, so it's a very different pressure, very different environment. And, and those pressures, I suppose, for you were, were quite acute when you were made... Um the Red Bull team principal in 2004, then the youngest um, ever. In fact, I think maybe you still are the youngest. Is that right? I still am the youngest. 18, yeah. 18 there, years later. There you go. Um, what does that say? Still, still the youngest team, but it shows how old the others are. Yeah. <laughs> That's the headline thought. So so you came into Red Bull at a difficult time. At the beginning, right at the beginning. So, I mean, Red Bull had just bought Jaguar. Yeah. Um, Jaguar had been a sort of, annually underperforming team. And, uh, you know, Red Bull wanted to shake things up. Dietrich Manorships had a vision where he wanted to compete. He, he'd been a sponsor in Formula One, a shareholder, but he never outright owned a team. And I'd known Red Bull from running some of their junior drivers in, in yeah. Formula 3000, what was, as I say, the Formula 2 championship. And um, I had an ambition and Bernie Eccleston was pushing me, come on, we need some young blood in Formula One. And he was trying to push me to buy Eddie Jordan's team oh, at right. the time. And, uh, and then Red Bull came along and bought Jaguar. Um, and the Jordan deal got ever more complicated. Um, and so, uh, you know, Dietrich Mateschitz um, approached me and, uh, you know, asked if I'd like to join as the team principal. How old were you at that point? I was 31. I mean, so uh, just 31. So I was a young guy. Um, I had nothing to lose. I was very ambitious. And it was a no-brainer to join, you know, having spent a little bit of time with Dietrich, who was I was introduced to through Helmut Marko, you know, hearing his vision and his passion for what he wanted to achieve. It was a no-brainer to, to say, yeah, that's what I want to be part of. I want to be involved uh, in from the, from the very beginning. And so uh, I signed up and joined, I think, January 7th, 2005. What do you remember of, of that first day walking into that business? Was it an intimidating thing that you faced? It was different. I mean, I was coming from a team that had probably 25 to 30 people in um, to suddenly a team that had 350 to 400 people yeah. in. And yeah, it was, uh, people were very unsure. You know, there's this young guy turning up to be team principal. They didn't know what to expect from me. I mean, some of them had heard of me from what I'd done in Formula 2, but suddenly being thrown in front of all of the staff. And then um, I uh, literally uh, was sat at a desk with the the previous management had been removed earlier in the day. Wow. Uh, and there was a half-drunk cup of coffee and some unopened Christmas cards. It was uh, a little bit lonely on that first day, but it was then a question of like, trying to understand the business, the people, and where the skills and, and weaknesses and the strengths were. Did do you address everyone? Did you literally go out and, and gather everyone together and, and try and, I don't know, rally the troops in some way? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely got everybody together. I was introduced as the, as the new team principal. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, I just laid out my stall that I was there to, to listen, to look and listen. And, um, you know, together, collectively, we were going to move the team forward. And uh, certainly those first few weeks were a matter of just looking and learning and listening. When we think about youth and especially naivety, perhaps, it's often seen as a weakness. But in some, type, some ways, it can be kind of an amazingly freeing thing. 
to not know everything and not be burdened by by too much experience. Do you think there was some of that with you, maybe? Absolutely, Anna. But I think the big difference between then and now, I used to worry about everything because, you know, and I think what the benefit of experience gives you is to you know, worry about the things you can control, but don't worry about the things that you can't. It was, in many respects, a big step. But in others, it was just dealing with people. It was all the same problems that I'd been hearing about in Formula 2 and just trying to break them down and find solutions, find answers to to problems and um, you know, actually what was what was here was some very capable people. They just weren't working as a team, as a one unit. They were just individual departments that weren't weren't joined up. Red Bull is, as a as a wider business is is fascinating um, because obviously it's it's an, quite an obscure energy drink, but then it's so much more than that in so many ways. What well, I wonder what it's like working under a company like Red Bull essentially and how their wider company ethos and culture has kind of influenced you. Oh, definitely. I mean, the, the culture and the DNA of Red Bull is embodied throughout the business here. And I think it's, you know, we're a bit of a maverick. We're not afraid of being a challenger um, and taking on the establishment, as we have done with the uh, the likes of some of the iconic brands in Formula One. So I think that those consistencies run across between the parent company and, and ourselves that are a subsidiary. Um, but then as a race team, we've we've also developed our own culture of creating very much a can-do attitude of not being afraid to take on a challenge and it never being good enough, never yeah. accepting, you know, if you win a race, there's always still something you can learn and it, it never quite being enough. Let's talk about the, the sport itself and the kind of inner workings because it's, it's so fascinating and so layered, I suppose. In many ways, Formula One is, is a very reactive sport in some ways. You, you're constantly adapting. It's adaptive, unlike other sports, perhaps. It, to what extent is your job day-to-day, Christian, kind of uh, problem-solving in, in small ways and firefighting, I suppose? Oh, it's constant. It's constant problem-solving and firefighting. You know, challenges are thrown at you on a daily basis. And whether that be from regulations changing or, or just challenges within the business and um, you know, that, that, that come up within the competitive industry. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it's multifaceted. And the role that I do, you know, I end up wearing many caps. I'm a CEO of a high technology company between Monday and, and Friday. And, and for 22 weekends of the year, I'm the team principal of a high-performing sports team and all the challenges that come with that. But it's, uh, yeah, you never know what to expect when you're driving into work. Um, but that's part of the fun and the challenge of it is uh, particularly in the competitive world that we live in. And it's it's interesting in other ways as well because, on the one hand, it's such a technical, analytical sport driven by data, and on the other, it's a very kind of visceral, emotional thing. Certainly, if anyone's ever been down on a race weekend. But to where do you kind of see yourself in that dynamic? Are you someone who's very much head driven, or kind of I don't know? Did you go with your gut more? How do you find? How do you make your decisions? I suppose. I think you have to balance it. I mean, head has to lead the heart, but. Um... I think that, you know, sometimes you've got to trust your instinct as well. And, uh, you know, that's what I've always done. I've always gone with my instinct and um, it's served me well so far. So, um, but, you know, you've got to calculate that and balance that with, you know, making informed decisions. And um, that's, uh, that's part of the challenge of, of this business or any, any competitive business. And it's interesting you speak about the different hats you've got to wear. Do you consciously have to, on the morning of a Saturday psych yourself up and get yourself on a different kind of mindset are you aware you're putting a kind of game face on i suppose oh really i mean i'm doing it long enough now that you switch from one role into yeah. another. the most peaceful time for me and the time that i enjoy the most is actually 
you know, between that one hour of qualifying or when the light goes out for the race, because then you're at one with your team, just doing what it's all about, which is the sport and the competition, all the rest of it. There's an awful lot of bullshit uh, that goes on, you know, whether it be media, whether it be, um, you know, whatever else that we're asked to do. So, um, you know, there's, um, there's, a, there's a political element with it. There's dealing with the FIA and the regulator and the commercial rights holder, um, dealing with partners and sponsors and appearances and meet and greets and all of those kinds of things. So, so yeah, my weekend is absolutely rampacked from the moment that I uh, yeah. arrive to the point that I leave. And what do you like in the hours and minutes before the lights go on, so to speak. What are you like in, in the equivalent of a changing room? What do you, do you kind of give a big team talk? Are you very calm? Are you jokey? Are you serious? What's the atmosphere like? I think it's important to be calm. I think it's important to be calm and, and you know, you don't want people to feel tension. You've got to embrace yeah. those nerves and, and, and um, you know, recognize those nerves. And I think it'd be wrong if you didn't get a little bit nervous. I mean, no matter how many races that you, yeah. that, that you do. Um, and I think that's a that's a good thing. That's a that's a positive thing. And um, you know, everybody as the team leader is looking up to you. So if you're looking nervous and you know that uh, uh, you're on edge, then that will embody itself through the rest of the team. So it's important. I've always felt to make sure that you have a a certain calmness and serenity about yourself. Yeah. There's lots of different styles of manager across the world of sport and there's everyone from Alex Ferguson and his hairdryer treatment to people who are very kind of relaxed and almost, um, I don't know, slightly jokey with it all. Where do you fall on that spectrum, do you think? There's a time and a place for each of those elements. Yeah. There's time but, and a place that maybe you do have to have an Alex Ferguson, but that should always be behind a closed door. You know, and there's a time that a bit of levity is needed to just depressurize the moment so it's mm. it's trying to pick the right moment for the right approach do you have any kind of rituals or little things that you do for yourself to to help yeah yeah i used to when i was driving and it's something that's unfortunately carried over into the role that i now perform so i i have certain things that i do um <clears throat> you know certain little rituals whether it's approaching the driver from his right hand side to okay. talk to him on the grid when he's in the car um, whether it's um, nominating a lucky toilet for the weekend, which is something that <laughs> has gone all the way back to my to my karting days, that can be somewhat awkward when uh, the rest of the toilets are not being utilised. Um, but uh, yeah, I think there's small ritual things that you do, but it's part of turning your um, your mindset into what the challenge ahead is, and just getting in the zone for the race uh, that lies ahead. And when you're in the heat of that race and you're, as you say, at one with your team, are there any moments when you feel like it's completely out of your hands and, and all you can do at that point is be another spectator and just kind of pray, I suppose, cross your fingers and hope? Yeah, <laughs> yeah sometimes, sometimes, yeah, sometimes things are beyond your control yeah. and you, you're sitting there waiting, hoping for something something to happen and uh Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But that's, you know, part of the joy of, of sport, I suppose. What's the moment like when the car crosses the finish line? And, and it, I guess if you've won, it's very different to if you've lost. But what's it like when, when, when you know you've just won a race? That winning feeling is incredible. And the problem is winning is addictive. It's, you know, you feel that sort of rush, that it, the sense of achievement that it gives you. And it's a sense that you, 
you want them want to feel again. But it's, you know, I think it's even more rewarding as a team principal because it's the recognition that every single department, not just track side, but behind the scenes, all the design side of the business, all the operational side, the production side, research and development, they've all done their bit. Mm. And they've all done their bit better than every other team to achieve that victory. And I think, you know, Formula One is the biggest team sport in the world. Um, and uh, uh, it's just the realization of that whole team coming together to yeah. achieve, you know, a race win against some massive opponents is a hugely rewarding feeling. And what do you do to celebrate when you've when you've won? Is it important to get everyone together? And, and how do you kind of, I don't know, let them know that it's a job well done? Yeah, you've got to you've got to celebrate success. Um, you should never ever take it for granted, and that's why we celebrate every victory. After every race, after every victory, good or well, even after um, you know a non-victory, we get everybody together and we celebrate as a team, or we support each other as a team on the days that that haven't gone so well. And it's important to recognise those moments as a team, as one unit. We spoke about winning and losing there, and there's a a kind of a psychological debate, I suppose, whether very competitive people are either driven by their desire to win and beat people or driven by their fear of losing. What, what do you think you are in that kind of dichotomy? I think it's a combination of both. I mean, you've got to have that drive to chase those goals, but you've also driven by a fear of failure that mm. that pushes you on, that, that just, again, motivates and makes you relentless in that pursuit of success. Formula One is, is filled with so many big characters, a couple of whom we mentioned already. Mm. People like Bernie Eccleston and, and Eddie Jordan and Flavio Briatore. What have you learned from being around those people and the kind of personas they are? What, what do they teach you? Well, a lot. I mean, when, you, when I came into the sport, you know, the sport was being run by the duo of Bernie commercially and Max Mosley. I mean, they were mm. quite a double act. And then you had fierce competitors, but also entrepreneurs in like Ron Dennis or... Frank Williams, um, Jean Todt, uh, Flavio Briatore, so many, Eddie Jordan, Paul Stoddart. There was so many big and different characters in there. But but the the successful guys, despite being very different, they actually all shared um, very similar virtues in that they were hugely competitive and they would do whatever it took to win, to defend their team, to defend their position. And... um, I, you know, I learned a lot in those early years from just watching and listening to those guys. And as I say, what's very different, Ron Dennis and Flavio Brittori, two completely different characters, but actually shared the same passion for the sport and the, the desire for, uh, for success. So we're sitting here at the end of 2022, which has been another incredible year, obviously, for, for Red Bull. But it was 2021, which was probably in recent history, one of the most exciting and colourful yeah. years, I think, in, in recent Formula One history. Crazy. You were right at the, the heart of that. And before we get to the, the incredible ending and, and the successes, I wonder what it was like being in the middle of that week to weekend to weekend. Oh, it was brutal. It was absolutely <laughs> brutal because it went from race one in Bahrain um, where the two drivers were going absolutely hammer and top to the final lap of the final race in Abu Dhabi 10 months later. And, um, you know, it was two titans of the sport. It was Lewis Hamilton, you know, the most successful driver of all time um, up against a young emerging talent of Max Verstappen who, you know, just wasn't afraid to take it to him and to race him hard, you know, wheel to wheel. And so, so this battle went on and on and off track because it got very heated between mm. the two teams. And indeed, Mercedes hadn't 
encountered competition like we gave them. And it went all the way down to that last lap in Abu Dhabi. And, you know, the two drivers tied on points. It was uh, uh, unbelievable. So it was took a huge amount of everybody yeah. you know, within the team. And I think it will be looked back at one of the biggest ever championship years of Formula One. And the pressure on you, on you personally, were you aware that there was, it felt different to, to another year? And did you feel particularly, I don't know, tense or stressed about it all? Oh, very much so. I mean, it was, uh, a, it's a very different pressure when you're fighting for a victory and fighting for yeah. a championship. And, you know, we were going up against a formidable opponent um, that obliterated the rest of the opponents, you know, for the previous seven or eight years. So, mm. um, and it got, got um it got a, a bit feisty at times, particularly because there was a lot going on off track. Um, there was a lot of politics. There was a lot of posturing and positioning. And of course, we were in the, in the background building an engine business and recruiting aggressively that wasn't endearing us to our, um, to our main opponents. So um, there, there, was a, there was a huge, huge amount going on. And, uh, you know, we're not a political organization. We're, we're very much a race team. And sometimes there was the odd torpedo coming in where you think, where on earth did that come from? How do you feel about about all the off-track stuff? Because on the one hand, for, for, for a neutral, it makes you know things even more interesting and even more exciting, and it's part of the entertainment in many ways yeah. for the rest of us. Yeah, for you guys, it's great. Um, <laughs> when you're in it, it's slightly slightly more painful. But uh, look, and, and you know, all these fly-on-the-wall uh, documentaries are opening up the sport and giving more access, and so you're seeing and you're hearing more and experiencing some of that journey. But, um, you know, hugely, hugely stressful. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's uh, 2021. I, I hope not to experience a season like that again in uh, too much of a hurry. <laughs> to what extent does uh, having a, a really tight rivalry with a team like Mercedes to what extent is it actually incredibly useful for you? Does it does it push you guys to do things you wouldn't have done otherwise? Absolutely. I think it pushes us all to another level. And I think, um, you know, rivalry is part of sport and you're at your best when you're under pressure. Or certainly we as a team perform better when we're under pressure. And I think that, uh, um, you know, it's been an intense um, rivalry. Um, and we just haven't settled. Uh, we just have just kept pushing and pushing and and you know chasing after those goals you mentioned um the documentaries there especially drive to survive is obviously the the huge breakthrough that kind of put you really as a character at the heart of of the narrative did that change the way you thought about yourself did it change your life were you stopped in the street more often was it a kind of odd experience to see yourself on the screen in that way well you know formula one's a always been a well-viewed uh, sport. Yeah. And so anybody that follows the sport would tend to know, you know, who some of the certain key players are. What Drive to Survive did was take Formula 1 to the masses. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly everybody knows who you are. Um, in all different, you know, go to the US where we'd be anonymous previously, suddenly everybody knows or, or a vast amount of people know who you are. And of course, sport can be polarizing as well. So you get people that support our team, people that don't, that support our driver or don't support our drivers. And of course, they're also making a TV show. So yeah. the way that it's cut, the way that it's edited is there to be dramatic, it's there to be uh, you know, entertaining. And you're always gonna get heroes and villains and sometimes they alternate from program to program or series to series, but it doesn't change who you are. 
or who I am. And sometimes that's not reflected through uh, uh, the media. But as long as you're comfortable in your own skin, that's the main thing. And uh, I think that uh, it's been an incredible thing for Formula One. It's been incredibly successful. Mm. Um, it's put the whole sport on a different on a different level. And um, it's been fantastic. The new fans that it's brought to Formula One, the revenue that it's bringing into the sport. I guess the only downside from a personal point of view is that you lose your anonymity uh, to a degree. And, uh, you, you know, which used to be just with my wife, but um, yeah. um, now it's unfortunately uh, with myself as well. But, you know, that's why it's important to have family and quiet time as well. Does that keep you grounded? What are you doing when you're kind of far away from all of this? You know, I, I grew up in the countryside. I'm a country boy. I like the outdoors world. Um, you know, we have three, uh, you know, young children. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, I love animals. We've got loads of them dogs and chickens and goats and donkeys and horses and i'm at my most content when i'm just outside with the family um or riding a horse or driving a tractor and you mentioned your your wife there who's of course jerry halliwell who has experienced the level of fame i suppose beyond any um formula one star in many ways did she give you any advice does she ever help you deal with the kind of the eyes and the pressure yeah, look, I mean, what she went through in her career um, is not dissimilar to, you know, that uh, Formula One at the end of the mm. day. They, they put on a performance and, and they it's a show that obviously moved around the world. And, um, you know, she is very grounding. She'll often remind you that a, a pat on the back is only six inches from a kick up the arse. Um, <laughs> so, uh, That's good. yeah, and, and she's been incredibly supportive and I'm very lucky uh, to have somebody that understands the pressures of a business, you know, like this, that is consuming and, you know, it's a lot of time away from the family and, and, and the children. But, uh, you know, she's been incredibly supportive and I'm hugely grateful for that. I want to speak quickly about your kind of relationship with Max, who you mentioned there. As far as kind of precocious young talents go, he's been an incredible rising star and is probably going to be one of the greats himself. What's the principal driver relationship like? How do you help him, support him psychologically, emotionally? What's your kind of relationship? We're just trying to guide at the relevant moments. I mean, Max is an incredible talent. He's a phenomenal talent. He, he came to us as a teenager. So he came as a, you know, as, a, as I say, as a teenager, and he's grown into a young man um, during the time that he's been, been with us. And it's been fascinating to see him evolve and emerge both as a human being and as a driver. And I mean, the talent and the ability and the commitment that he has is something we haven't seen at that level um before so he's very easy to work with he's very straightforward he's a very honest guy um he says it as it is which is sometimes much easier to deal with than somebody that bottles up you know emotion and he's um he's an incredibly gifted driver um you know when you put him in the car you're gonna get 110 percent um and uh he expects the same in return so it's a very straightforward you know, dynamic and, and, and relationship and one that's based on trust. Has, has it always been as straightforward with your drivers? Have you ever had different characters who have been kind of tougher to, or more difficult to deal with in some ways? You have different drivers. Everybody's a different character, aren't they? So, um, yeah. you know, different drivers have different traits to them. Um, and, uh, you know, we've never had any disaster drivers. Um, no. Here we've had the old tricky one here and there. But, you know, on the whole, they've been, they've been fantastic to work with. I've heard you talk before about the kind of your natural optimism. 
which often from the outside is, is, is surprising because in a sport where so much is at stake, you'd expect people to be looking always for the problems and the faults and the, and the, the kind of the next disaster coming. Is it, do you think it's fair to say that you're a glass half full kind of person? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how does it help being negative? You know, yeah. who's that going to help? So you've got to look on the bright side, look on the positive side. And I think that, uh, you know, we're all very lucky to be doing what we're doing. And um, uh, I've always been taking the opinion of, you know, to be one of gratitude rather than one of uh, expectation or um, uh, entitlement. So, uh, you know, we're all incredibly lucky to work in a sport that we love and, and actually earn a living out of it. And um, I think that, you know, the fact that we're able to win races as a team uh, and achieve what we have is, you know, something we're all incredibly proud of and, and very grateful for. Looking forward then to the future, I think it's fair to say that Red Bull is in a, a kind of another great period and hopefully it's going to continue. Do you think your kind of hunger for winning and, and, and getting better and better and faster and faster will ever be satisfied or do you just want to win every year now for the foreseeable? Well, it's never enough. It's never enough. I mean, it's incredible what we've done. We've broken all our own records this year and it already feels like yesterday. Um, so, uh, you know, it's always about the next thing, the next thing. We ne You never get a moment to really look backwards it's always about looking forwards and um i guess you look backwards when you get to the end um and i feel like i've still got a long way to go you've been in this game obviously for 20 years now in formula one almost and the world is it has changed hugely in those 20 years in, in all sorts of ways and, and the sport's changed a lot too do you think formula one in the year 2042 will look remarkably different do you think it'll even still be recognizable in some way by 2042, I mean, who knows? I mean, that's like 20 years' time. Mm. You know, will, the, will we even need drivers? Yeah. Um, you, you know, who knows where we'll be? I mean, um, I think there will always be a demand to see, you know, human and machine at the absolute limit. Um, what those machines will be, whether they'll have combustion engines or hydrogen engines or whether they have wheels and tires, who knows? Mm. Um, but uh, I think there will always be that desire to see current day chariot racing whatever those chariots look like i wonder if um if anything has ever tempted you away from this sport you must get offers all the time from different industries and 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 kind of big companies wanting to poach your formidable kind of talents and drive has anything ever swayed you a little bit <laughs> no not really because my passion is here and i think yeah. you have to go where your where your heart is and 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 you have to do what you enjoy and what you love and and I get a lot of fulfillment out of what I do. And so um, I'm not sure I could get that in another industry. So, yeah, I think I'm very focused on what I do here and enjoy what I do here. So, um, uh, and, you know, would it apply to other sports and business? I have, I have no idea. Um, you know, I, I know a lot about Formula One and, and motor racing. I'm not so sure about other sports. Before we let you go, Christian, I want to ask you some of our kind of quick fire questions, which we sometimes chuck yeah. in at the end of these. So I wonder what you'd be doing if you weren't doing this, if Formula One didn't exist. What do you think Christian Horner would have found himself doing? I'd probably be working in the countryside somewhere, sitting on that tractor. <laughs> What's your worst habit, do you think? My worst habit is my superstition for having to find a lucky toilet. You know, that's 
not a good superstition to have. What's the most impressive thing you can cook? Most impressive thing I can cook? Um, wow. Uh, I would say a um, pizza out of the packet. <laughs> what are you most proud of in your career so far? What's been the kind of single crowning achievement to you? I think the, the most thing I'm most proud of is my family. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, yeah that, that means the world to me. What's been your biggest regret or, or biggest failure in some way? Uh, my biggest um, regret, uh, I, 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 yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult to say. I've never gone through life looking looking backwards. So um, I can tell. <laughs> uh, you know, you have you have to excuse me on that one. That's okay. If you could learn a new skill, what would you like to learn? Cooking, based on what I can, <laughs> what I can't do. That sounds like a good idea. What was the last piece of advice that you gave someone? Don't fuck it up. <laughs> who did you say that to? Can you tell us who that was to? Um, I think it was on the grid. I think it was on to one, one of the engineers. Um, yeah, so seemed appropriate at the time. I'm sure it worked. Is there, are there any phrases um, or conventions that you like to banish from your office or banish from the earth? Anything you're really tired of hearing? Uh, you know, we don't like to hear reasons why things can't be done. We want to find reasons why things can be done. So, yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, um, negativity has no place uh, in, this, in this environment. Uh, a couple more then. What's your most treasured possession? Have you got any kind of, I don't know, artifacts from your driving days or your first pair of gloves or something? My most um, treasured uh, possession would uh, have to be an old-timer uh, car that I have, an old AC Cobra, which um, wow. is probably my most treasured Beautiful. profession. Is there a book that's influenced you more than any other? Um, not, not especially. Not especially. I enjoy reading books, but I wouldn't say there's one that's particularly stood out. But uh, but yeah, there's there's so many so many variants that you can read. I like biographies, autobiographies. There's always something you can learn. And finally, do you have a personal motto? Christian. Yeah. Let's go out for dinner. <laughs> it's a good one. Thank you so much, Christian. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Okay. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.